five, four, three, two, one. Hello, everybody. This is Sam Raimi, the writer and the director of The Evil Dead. Today is December 14th, 2009, and with me in this studio at the Sony Pictures lot in Culver City is Mr. Bruce Campbell and Mr. Robert Tapper. Greetings. Pleasure to be here. Greetings. Pleasure to be here also for recording on Evil Dead. I mean, Book of the Dead. Book of the Dead was the original title of this picture. This is Sam speaking, and I was in ancient history class at Michigan State University, probably 1977, and we were studying the Book of the Dead, and I thought that would make a great title for a horror picture. But had we been thinking about making this movie yet? Were we roughly talking about it? Because what, what prompted you to go in that direction? Well, there was a lot of talk from Robert that when we strike out and make our first independent feature, it had to be a horror film, because he did the research and figured that those are the kinds of films that could be made cheaply and still find distribution among the general public. Right, because at that point, we must have, the three of us then were talking, because I remember in January of 79, we were having phone calls between my apartment, I choose the apartment, and you guys up at Michigan State. So yeah, you were in class, in school, so this that must have been the genesis of why you were looking for a story. That's right. We actually had another script called Relentless that was a battle between a ball wrecker and a bulldozer that Sam had written, but we just knew it would be very difficult to get that financed because people's first movies usually at that time only played in drive-ins. There was no DVD market. There was no videotape market. So it was really a drive-in driven business, and we knew that horror films always played in the drive-in. So that was our reason to go ahead and make a horror film. And that's pretty much how young filmmakers would break into the business in the late 70s, through the drive-in market. There wasn't really the Sundance Film Festival and all the American independent film festivals which were as showcases for these young filmmakers' talent. But probably equally so, it was easier to get a movie played in a theater back in the 60s and 70s because there were so many small regional distributors. It wasn't just the big conglomerates. Dimension was actually at that time a small sub-distributor in Detroit and Ohio. So we had met with a bunch of these sub-distributors who just handled three states. You would take a hundred prints, play them in those three states, Ohio, Illinois, and Detroit, and then move on to the south. And you'd play different circuits like that. So it was an entirely different way of exhibiting movies where now everything comes out all across the country in one fell swoop. It's funny, I remember when Bruce and myself and Rob were going around asking these sub-distributors what they wanted to see in a picture, because we would think very locally. We were thinking, yes, well, maybe we'll get it released in a tri-state area. Maybe we'll get a national distribution deal. We certainly didn't think about an international audience at the time. So we took very seriously these different distributors and their stories. One of them would say something like, don't put the devil in the pictures because the religious organizations won't want to see it. Another guy began the change the title before we ever shot the movie process. We went to a sub-distributor in Detroit, Warren Zide's father, who was the head of Dimension at the time, and he already tried to change Book of the Dead to House of the Dead. He had done a great deal of research and found that no movie with dead in the title or with house in the title had ever not made money. So before we ever shot a frame of film, Warren Zide's father tried to change our movie from Book of the Dead to House of the Dead, Ultimately, we didn't get any money, but his son went on to become a famous producer and put some of those practices into play, and it worked very well for him. Also, there were other sub-distributors who promised that they would release our picture, uh, Rough Pictures, out of Cincinnati. They were a regional thing. We went down there and were chased out of a restaurant 
due to a violent tornado going through the town as we were meeting with them, so we had to flee and hide in the basement of a restaurant. I remember we we all got suits because now we realize, okay, we're actually going to make this movie. We, we need to start raising money. So I remember wearing suits to every single one of these meetings, all with briefcases, and there was still an office. I, Rob, I think it was the Andy Granger's office where there was a woman who was the old-time operator where she was... She was punching those little things in and out and had that funny headset. Uh, and the, the office was all hand-carved oak. I mean, this was a—we were catching in 79 just the tail end of these old-timers who were moving out. It was a strange time period. Well, the old-time theatrical distribution. And really, once we continue on, made the movie, and were seeking distribution, um, we hooked up with the last of the old-timers, Irvin Shapiro, who was able to— make us realize that the U.S. was just a single territory and the rest of the world was composed of 60 or 70 other territories where the movie had to play. And that was a great awakening and and one now that people take for granted, of course, that is that international is bigger than the domestic market. But Irvin was the one who really put put that idea in our head and was able to find a way to exploit the picture internationally, sell it to people who made it successful, and then it came back to America where it found a distributor in New Line at the time, long before they had any other successes. But now, Sam, you had the idea now. How on earth did you get it into script form? Because we had never really seen that many Hollywood scripts. You know, what was that process? What was the writing process like? Well, you know from making Super 8 movies with myself and Scott Spiegel and John Cameron and Bill Kirk, Mike Ditz, Tim Quill and the rest of the gang that we didn't really write scripts back then. We would pretty much just get together, jot down ideas on paper, usually in an outline form, and then just go and start shooting stuff. So it was a new thing for us in college to actually work on a script. I think for me it started with working with Rob and my brother Ivan on The Happy Valley Kid, our Super 8 movie in 1977 at Michigan State University. That's the first time I actually wrote down dialogue and scenes that I would give to my film professor, Professor Donahoe, and Rob Tappert to actually see what the scene was about. So in the following year, 1977-78 semester, when you, myself, and Rob talked about making a feature film, I realized that I had to write a script for it. I worked with an independent study professor I think her name is Sheila Roberts, Dr. Sheila Roberts. And I wrote a script for my independent study project. And she helped me. She guided me. Was it a short script? Did it have to be full length? I mean, what? It was a full-length screenplay that I had to write for my grade. It was a little different than what we ended up with now, but it ended up being probably a 58-page document. And I got independent study credit for it. So it was my first experience writing a real screenplay. And I, I learned a lot through the process of trying to pull that off. It was the most difficult creative task I've ever had in my life. I can imagine. Then the trick was to figure out how much we needed to raise. Well, before we even got to to raise money, I remember the three of us went to New York to meet with a group called Levitt Pickman. They were distributors at the time. Somehow they were involved with Orion and being there. I'm not quite sure. They did the groove tube. They did the groove tube. That's right. And we went out there and we got an intent to distribute, a letter that we thought we could take to investors to say, look, there is a legitimate company that distributes movies and here is a letter of intent that they will actually look at our movie and if it's any good, try and make a deal to distribute it. So we sent the script for Book of the Dead to this organization and it was, I don't know, 65 pages. And I remember being at my house at my parents' home in Gross Point, Michigan, and the phone rang 
And there was the guy from Levitt Pickman calling, and he said, I read your script, and I'm sorry. You can't have five <laughs> minutes of setup and 60 minutes of The Exorcist. You know, that's, it just won't work like that. And so it was a very disheartening call. Of course, history has proved that it's not five minutes. It was 20 minutes of setup and then uh, another 65 minutes of nonstop horrors. That's a good story to, to illustrate, for me at least, how dependent we were on any professional's information they could, they could give us and how, maybe not in this story, but how much we were devastated, by I remember, by that news. So as a young filmmaker, you get totally tied up in your project and everything that has to do with it Everything about your project reflects on your state of being. You're unable to really disassociate the two things. So we were looking for any positive feedback we could get on some of the early movies we had done that had scares in them. We had made a short clockwork that we showed around and that we analyzed as to, you know, is this really good horror? Can we scare people? And that whole process of looking to people we thought were professionals, whether it was our professors at the university or filmmakers that we had worked with in the Detroit community looking for feedback from them where all you got really was horror stories, how they had gone and tried to make movies. Guys we worked for had made a biker picture and only told us the horror stories of why we needed to stay out of the film business. I remember Professor Asari. Yes, he was the only film production course I ever had at Michigan State University, or anywhere really, and I remember he had some old 16-millimeter equipment I felt very disassociated from the class. But I do remember when we presented, came back years later to East Lansing, Michigan, and we had a, a premiere of Book of the Dead. Maybe it was still called Book of the Dead then. He came to that show. And I remember his profound disappointment in me after <laughs> the screening. You can't just have crazy shot after crazy shot. I thought I was losing my mind in there. Didn't you learn anything from the class? <laughs> I, was, I was really uh, devastated by that. So much of what a filmmaker has to deal with is the disappointment of others when they see the work that they've created. That's the hardest thing for filmmakers like us to deal with, too, because our films are pure entertainment. They just want to please the audience. When we fail, we don't have an artistic leg to stand on. We've really failed. It's hard to know what the audience is going to like ahead of time when you don't preview the thing in a rough form first and start to get some early reaction. You really have to wait to the premiere to finally get their judgment on what they think of your film. This is before previews. Nowadays, you make a movie of 700 previews and people fill out little cards of what they think about your movie. We just basically mostly made this movie and had not shown it to that many audiences, just maybe groups of friends and things like that. But it wasn't the huge machine like they do now. So... And I don't know anyone that had seen the movie. This theater was full of a thousand people. This theater was an old-time theater from the 40s, and it was packed. For some reason, it was packed. I don't know how we got that many people there, but we no one knew what the reaction was going to be, and and they had all kinds of reactions: uh, horror, you know, disgust, but but a lot of laughter. And the, I remember after that show, there was a little old lady who tracked us down. We were in the lobby, and someone came up and said, there's a woman who wants to talk to you three guys who made the movie. And she was this old lady because the, the screening was open to everybody. And I remember we came over to her expecting to be reamed out by her about this horrible movie. And I remember she goes, fellas, I just want to tell you, I was having a horrible day, and I went in there, and I had a ball. So thank you very much. And we're like, this little old lady was thanking us for making Evil Dead. Something so. was wrong with that old woman. <laughs> it was a weird woman. 
I never told you. Uh, that was even more devastating to me and upsetting <laughs> to hear that come out of that woman's mouth. I remember that show at the Redford Theater. We were just finishing the blow-up from 16mm to the 35IP, and the print hadn't come out of Duart and Technicolor yet. I think Duart did the IP, but Technicolor was doing the print, and it wasn't going to be here in time for the show, the third print, and we didn't know what to do. And I didn't know who to ask in New York to bring that print, and no one could be bothered to do a... We didn't have any money to accept the plane ticket to bring him to Detroit. And the only person I could think to bother was Joel Cohn's little brother, Ethan Cohn, because it wouldn't be any bother for him. He was just a statistical accountant at Macy's, basically. No one would miss him if he was gone for a day or two. And so he was kind enough to get the print from Technicolor and j- jump on the plane, fly it into the Redford Theater in the nick of time, and save the screening. Thank That's you, right. Ethan. Ethan was at the screening at the Redford Theater. He was the delivery boy. He was the delivery boy, and he delivered on time, which is what all good delivery boys do. One of the things in making the Super 8 movies was we were able to be actually validated as creating a instrument that would scare people in their homes, and that was really the key, and that's something that later in life the Cone brothers, who... Joel Cohn was the assistant editor to Edna Ruth Paul on this movie. They saw what we had done, and they made their own little short that they used to raise money. So that making something that is a calling card or a sales tool selling the ultimate product you are making, I still think is a very valid thing for young filmmakers to to utilize. And we even are doing it right now in our business, making a, a small horror short with some filmmakers to use as a basis for a feature film. Well, you make a pilot for a TV show. You, you shoot the pilot, they, they don't, if it doesn't, if no one likes it, you're not going to make the TV show. So people do that all the time. And now what we were able to do though, right around that time was take that Super 8 movie within the woods and screen it at an actual theater, the Punch and Judy Theater, which was on the east side by you, Rob. And they had a weird management. They showed Rocky Horror on weekends. And so they were a little more willing to do kind of anything. And I remember we were able to set up a screening at the Punch and Judy Theater, hauling these cables and trying to, the, I mean, the speakers had all kinds of hum in it because the projectors had never had speaker wire going that far away before. And we didn't know if the, the actual image from a Super 8, because we're now, we're, we're using a Super 8 projector to project this movie in a major, in a, in a movie theater. We didn't know if the bulb, we, we were trying, I remember we were trying to get a special halogen bulb for this projector. You need to shout out the big bucks yeah. for that extra yeah. super throw button. And, and I think basically it just barely held Hit the through. super throw! <laughs> <laughs> and you could barely see it. It was a terrible image. And we got a review from that screening from Michael McWilliams, who was with the Detroit News. And again, so now we had two things. We had a letter of intent to distribute, if the movie was good, from a, a distributor in New York. And we had an article because he wrote an article. It was actually a very positive article. Uh, Within the woods, he had something like it. It was scarier than the prophecy and the Amityville horror combined. That was a great start for a review. So we could put those two things now in front of the investor uh, to try and show our, our credibility. But, Rob, you know, can you talk about Phil Gillis for a second? Yes, when we left college under a cloud uh, in March of 1979. Rob was evicted from his apartment for from, disturbing the peace. 
By making movies, right? But my roommate was evicted with me, and that was Sam. Uh, you dragged me down with you. Technically, <laughs> I was a roommate. I reached up from the grave and pulled you down. <laughs> yeah. So we knew that we needed a legal document to use to go around to individuals to try and raise money. My family knew a lawyer. Yeah, but Rob, tell them why they knew this lawyer. Why they knew this lawyer, because... Because of you. Well, actually, it was a family friend of my father's. I know but... it was, but why did they have to use him all the time? Who killed him, Rob? Um, well, in a, a misspent youth between my brother and I, <laughs> Mr. Gillis was involved in trying to get us out of scrapes with the law. That, that's the... Um, uh, that, that's the. I so, just had to get it out of you. I'm so, shocked to hear this. I know. So when uh, this is a revelation, a major so when revelation. We, when we were, so we knew a lawyer. We knew a lawyer who had gotten us out of jail, and he now knew that he was always interested in showbiz. He was in the players group, which is an all men's group where you wear tuxedos and dress up like a woman and perform plays. It always disturbed me that powerful politicians and lawyers were dressing up as women on Friday and Saturday nights. I don't know if that ever rung anything with you guys, but uh, I found it a little strange. It's uh, a tremendous amount of people in Michigan and the Midwest that seem to want to wear women's clothing. And my, <laughs> my mother, who has a lingerie shop, tells me all the time, she says, Sam, you'd be surprised the number of men who would first come in and say that they're buying something for their girlfriend... <laughs> And it turns out it's really themselves. I mean, we would be surprised how many men are running around, teachers, attorneys, dentists, wearing women's lingerie underneath their normal clothes. But perhaps the discussion is moving in a different direction. <laughs> I know, but I wouldn't be surprised with that. Phil I... was a fan of theater. So we hooked into his love of show business and desire to be part of it and put together a legal document that took forever and a day. And one of the, his junior lawyers in the firm he was with was in a glee club, so he also had a bit of that showbiz bug. Came from quite a wealthy family. and Mr. Brian Manugian. Right. And they were the basis from which we got money to go to other people because the one thing we learned from raising money is nobody wants to be the first one in. So to say that, oh, yes, these people have done it in kind and we've raised this money, opened the door to other people Right, because what they did to help us, this was a tremendously expensive document to draw up. Uh, normally, these things can cost $25,000 without batting an eye. It was a limited partnership that we... Private placement memorandum. That we formed, yeah. And so this document, even though it's you know mostly boilerplate, it's still an expensive thing to do. So the lawyers took an investment to do that work, which really helped us a lot because you know, we didn't have that kind of money to put up. And the document basically says, you, investor, if you invest... $10,000, you own 2% of the motion picture, and here's how the profits will flow if there ever are profits, etc. And the funny thing is I think there's, a, there's a, a sense that Evil Dead was a college production. It was conceived in college, but the formation of the business entity has absolutely nothing to do with a collegiate production. Fortunately, because the movie was successful, we were able to track who should get what over all this time. We never had to worry about figuring it out. Every actor signed a contract. Every investor signed a piece of paper that said they knew what the risks were. It, it was really very spelled out, and 30 years later, we're still able to funnel funds to the investors because we set up an entity through, you know, Rob knowing that we had to get a lawyer and had to do this. So, you know, thankfully, that was a step that probably allowed this movie to continue to move on because sometimes these old movies get into lawsuits if they get successful and they haven't worked things out. So I'm actually glad we did that, but at the time, I have to say, Reading that document was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. I had no idea what they were talking about. 
And I learned a great deal about business because we had to put a projections into this document that said, here is your expected return. And I had no idea. So we were sitting with an accounting firm working on projections on a business that we fully didn't understand and kind of guessing, well, if it does this and the theater takes that, here's the return you expect. And it was absolute guesswork. But it really made me realize that going forward that every startup business in the world has these same pulling-out-of-thin-air projections. Funny thing is, Rob, we've actually exceeded those projections now. We have exceeded For about 10 years, we were nowhere near those projections. But now we've far exceeded them, yes. So many of them are not just based on guesswork, but guesswork on guesswork, based on Levitt Pickman's letter, if the movie is of an acceptable quality. (laughs) That's right. And a particular agreement can be made financially, then we would gladly look upon distributing that product. But not even the terms of the distribution were probably set out in that letter. So even if those expectations had been met by them and they were still in business, who knows what type of deal we would finally have struck with them. They were unwilling to lay out all the terms up front at the time of that. And I thought it was interesting that it didn't wind up with Levitt Pickman anyway. No. <laughs> at the end of the day. No, they, they were gone by the time we actually finished the but movie. We appreciate their help. And then the, then the whole process of getting the investors, that's where it seemed like we had to start close to home and see who we could get first. And the investors were really an interesting group of who we got. Anyone that I knew wouldn't have anything to do with giving me any money for this motion picture. That was the the easy, quick no's. My father, my mother, my cousins, my uncles, everyone looked at me as though I were insane. Except you sold a man in Kmart at the film desk. That was a weird one. Yeah. All right, that's, this is how you got one investment. Tell them that one, Sam. Well, we were turning in our Super 8 film to Kmart Locally, it was in uh, Southfield, Michigan at 12 Mile Road and Telegraph. And I think it's still there. We were turning in the rolls of reversal stock for Within the Woods. And there was a gentleman there who was turning in family pictures. And he said, what are you doing with all those rolls of film? I probably had like 40 of them or 20 of them. And I told him, we're making a Super 8 short called Within the Woods to use as a tool to show to potential investors to solicit investments for our feature film. And he was an entrepreneur, a Michigan entrepreneur himself. And um, he was so interested in that idea that he said, well, show me this film. Consider me one of those potential investors. I'm interested in taking a look at it. And I think that was Mr. Gershon. Yeah. And he was a builder, maybe a contractor. He was a wonderful man. And I remember us going to his house and showing the finish within the woods there, and he became one of our first investors. He did, and although he's passed on, I know that that businesses, an ongoing Gershenson and whatever is still an ongoing real estate business in the Detroit area. Well, the investors, kind of, it was a whole weird group. I mean, one guy uh, worked at a lighting company at Jack Frost Electric where we had rented some stuff, and he gave us his Vegas money. He said, okay, guys, I'm, I'm going to buy a half a unit. The full unit was 10000 half unit was 5000 He goes, all right, I won't go to Vegas this year. I'll give you my Vegas money. And so that's, that's how we got his money. Yeah, the money came from all over, and we got basically just enough to scrape Well, 90000 would have allowed us to make the movie. We had a deal with the investors. We were looking for 150000 If we got to ninety, it would trigger it. It would be released from an escrow fund because if we didn't get it, we'd have to give the money back, which we were terrified to have to get that far and get it back. And I remember, Rob, we got to 85000 and we couldn't get any further and had to send a letter out to all the investors saying, we can do this. We can get the movie in the can for this, will you let us do it? And they said yes. That's right. And one of the things that raised the cost of the movie 
was along the way, we had originally conceived we were going to shoot the movie in Super 8 and blow it up to 35. We had seen some tests done by an outfit in San Francisco at that time who had taken the advertising Super 8 filmmaker. They said, we blow up um, Super 8 to 35. We saw something that they had blown up from Super 8 to 35. An Argentinian film. That's right. And we thought, oh, that's really cool. That'll look it great. It looked good. It looked good, too. And so then we decided, oh, let's do our own test. So we shot a small little horror film. We got a professional cameraman to do it. And a Bolu, top of the line. Terror at Lulu's. And the footage all came out black. Not from the <laughs> Super 8 blow up, but just from the Super 8 film, because the fancy cameraman we had had made a simple mistake. Not the lens cap, but... Some, something about the shutter, I don't even remember, but the film came out black, and it was devastating because we had spent money and time and a lot of effort into this thing, and we had to go do it again. That's right. So we reshot Terror at Lulu's. Yeah, but then it was the following disappointment was that it looked like crap. When we finally got it blown There was up. like golf ball-sized grain. We, we realized it just, whatever the footage they had that we saw before, I don't know what they had blown up to 35, but... The, ours didn't work. I'm, I remember that very specifically. Of like, oh, that was... We went back to your house, Rob. I think we're all sitting there going, uh, We could write uh, into the script that it was hailing golf balls. So I think <laughs> <it was>. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, that led to the decision of either not making this movie or go to the big, bad, unknown realm of 16 millimeter, which was... Yeah, baby! <laughs> which was like true professional that only we had worked with as production assistants on commercials that you see these nice cameras that they had we realized that it seemed as though we had to go up to the professional level, which was a whole different kettle of fish. We had made some 16-millimeter films. For instance, John Cameron, in his brief stay at NYU, had made some student films his first year there in 16-millimeter with his Bell and Howell from his school. Right. I remember Vern Nobles was kind enough to get equipment from the Detroit... Well, he himself rented this equipment, pulled favors in so that we could work with it over a weekend at my house and shoot some 16-millimeter scenes. Right. I also shot a short with you, Sam, called Fish Sticks, where you were the hapless fisherman, and that was black and white 16-millimeter. Yes, and I remember you and Scott shot some 16-millimeter adventure in the woods one day with John Cameron's involvement mm -hmm. and Mike Ditz's involvement with a car. Bill Kirk was in it. So we had dabbled, yeah. a little dabbling. But it was a whole new realm, and obviously it meant that we were going to have to spend a lot more on film processing... You had to rent a camera, because previous to that, we only bought cameras. You didn't rent cameras. It blew the budget out of the water, and suddenly we hadn't shot 16-millimeter, not professionally, and so we had to bring a cameraman aboard to ensure the quality of the production. Before, we could have just almost had anyone shoot the thing. Now, so we found Tim Philo. At, it, he was at Wayne State as a student, and he showed a movie that he had shot, and we got invited to that. Yeah, and basically what I said when I saw it was, there's an image on the screen Let's hire him. <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. And he was able to then wrangle somehow from Wayne State University, at that time, a BL, I believe it was, um, 16... An Arias and a BL. So we had um, a couple of cameras that we could use as part of the production. And, and Tim was great. He came for the first six weeks of the shooting. I think we had got one Arias on our own. We rented that from Victor Duncan in Detroit. And destroyed it. We destroyed a lot of equipment on that show. Everything we rented from everyone in town was pretty much damaged, and, and everybody in the city of Detroit knew it. We were trying to uh, get this thing going so we could shoot in this like summer of 79, but it started to get delayed. It took a long time to do the, the legal work. Uh, raising the money was clunky and took too long, and I think that was one of the reasons why 
it pushed us to go south. Pushed us to go south, and then we arrived down in Morristown, Tennessee, where we had chosen to shoot based on scouting we had done. Got down there, and the house we had planned to, to shoot in fell through, and suddenly our location that the entire movie was based in was no longer available to us. And because of that, we had to start with the car photography first, and that stuff was all in the sunshine. It was light and breezy. I remember we were driving on the mountains of Tennessee. It was beautiful, blue mountains. And the weather was still good, too. <laughs> it was gorgeous, and there was a spirit of camaraderie and friendship with our friends. Oh, we were fresh, ready, a making, a, making a motion picture. Shooting some lines in the car. What could possibly go wrong? It was great. While we were off shooting on the roads and that, I remember sitting on the side of the road with Josh Becker as we were shooting things, and already in his very calculating mind, we were way behind schedule, and it was taking way too long to shoot these simple driving shots. And so Josh was forever bending my ear as I was controlling traffic at the end of the, these deserted roads, waiting for somebody to show up to say, hey, no, we're shooting here. You can't go this way. And he would say, oh, geez, you know, this is taking so long. We should be in the cabin. We should be doing this. We're going to be stuck down here past Christmas and all this kind of stuff. Already Josh was foretelling what eventually did become true, which was the shoot took far longer than we ever thought. Josh was the canary in the coal mine, I think. Canary in the coal mine. And he just about died. We had a bunch of other crew members that we knew we kind of had to involved because we had known them from the past. Uh, David Goodman is one. Sam, you have a pet name for him. Yes, I do. But there's children. Oh. Well, the other one is the filmmaker's burden. Yes. That in order to carry the weight of a motion picture, you must have people to drag you down at the same time. So Goodman was involved as the cook. Uh, now, how did you know Steve Frankel, Dart? But Dave was a great help making this picture, seriously. He Dave was. Goodman. He was. Source of humor and warmth. And, uh, and lousy food. Oh, boy, he can't cook at all. Well, Dart, Steve Frankel, where did he come from? Steve Frankel was a great friend of mine from Camp Tamaqua. He was a can-do guy. He, was, he has a great sense of humor, and he can do anything. And he, he's got it really, along with your brother Don, fixed up this cabin for us, turned it from a barn into a working set. And I remember he tried to give me some great Hitchcockian... Furniture, yeah, that it was, it was a little off-kilter. Everything off a little, little bit, a few degrees to create an unbalanced feeling with the audience. Dart had this big hammer all the time. It was like the Uru or something, his Uru stick or something. He could destroy anything with that hammer and then build anything with that hammer. Yeah, he was a, he was a potent force of nature, that guy. Then let's see, other strange, Josh Becker, uh, who was a longtime friend of both of ours, Sam and mine, um, uh, came down, and he, he wound up kind of doing a little bit of everything. I think he was... We wound up doing second unit sound and second unit lighting because it took so long to shoot the movie that we, we lost crew members after a while. Yeah, and we had made a lot of movies with Josh all throughout high school, and he would direct them or he'd act in them with us. And so it was just a natural to be making this picture with Josh, and I don't think we could have finished this film without Josh. And then there was Tom Sullivan, who really inherited every single other job that those people didn't do, from the makeup effects to the production design to, oh, yeah, go tear up that bridge and make it into something horrible. So Tom was somebody that Sam and I had met at college. He was interested in filmmaking and came to see some of our early Super 8 movies that ran on the campus and then designed the artwork for ads that we would use to run in the student newspaper to announce our movies. Very creative guy, very artistic, uh, you know, good artist. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant artist and... He's brilliant, not just in illustration, but working with makeup effects. I saw a lot of them at Michigan State University. Really advanced stuff I had never seen any student do before. And 
Bruce, you and me were a big fan of that through Scott Spiegel. I mean, we love the Wolfman makeup and the Frankenstein's makeup, and had known through. The, yeah, this was another Dick like Smith. this was like renting uh, sixteen millimeter equipment. Makeup effects were a whole different level. Two of us putting clown white on our face to do a Super Eight movie in high school. This was a whole different deal with moldings, castings, plaster. You know, finding these strange materials, Cavasil, uh, stuff that dentists used. Uh, you know, we. We had to figure all that. Tom had to figure all that out and had already started that process. So he seemed to round off that that main crew. In addition, when I had first met Tom at Michigan State University with Rob through the Michigan Society of Creative Filmmaking, that group we started to show our films up there, he had shown it great advances in film mat work, superimposition, you know, double exposing, 16 and Super 8 film. He was so advanced as far as stop-motion animation. He really uh, had mastered at an early age film technology and film effects, special film effects, photography-wise. So he was a master of makeup and photography, and he's just the guy we needed to pull off so much of what we did in this picture. Now, thespian-wise, some of it came close to home. Ellen Sandweiss was a friend from high school. Ellen Sandweiss was our go-to girl. She was the actress of the bunch. Starting in high school, we met her in our high school plays, John Cameron, Bill Kirk, you, Bruce, and myself all were involved with her in musicals that Mr. Mall would have at uh, Groves High School and uh, Helen LeBat would have at Groves High School. And we knew that she was funny and we could talk to her and she was always in the movies, therefore, because she was a, a buddy of ours. Same with Cheryl Guttridge a little bit later. She became a young girl that we worked with in all our movies and we could count on to deliver a good performance and it was uh, very dependable. But I don't think we could get Cheryl for this. Her, her mother wouldn't wouldn't allow it. Her, her mother didn't trust her to run away with a bunch of college boys. <laughs> Although we do use bits and pieces of her body along the way. She was a fake shemp through all of this when we did pick up. And then we um, we had to find the other actors, which was its own little process. Like, how do, how do you find actors? Sam, we, we had auditions at your house. And I, I remember some of the, the the women who came to audition brought their boyfriends with them because this seemed like we were making a snuff film. Absolutely. It's you know. very unusual and, and suspicious to be making a low-budget 16-millimeter film in Detroit at that time. Making any kind of, yeah, any kind of film in Detroit. But eventually, we got uh, Rich DeManicor, who settled in, Betsy Baker, and Teresa Seaforth, who Rob, we actually got her because the CPA who did our projections, it was his daughter. Right. And he mentioned to us that his daughter was, I think, an actress. And we went, all right, fine, send her over. And I think we liked her. So that rounded out the five cast members. And off to Tennessee it was. Now, but now, do you guys remember uh, why Tennessee? Did they have a film commission? Did they have a way that someone could show you guys around? That was the original reason we went to Tennessee is they had a, at that time, a small film commission. They gave us somebody named Gary Holt who was like a location manager at the time. And he took us around and showed us things and constantly tried to hook us up with different local talents and, and bits and pieces of Tennessee lore and then was kind enough to have the entire cast and crew over for a true Thanksgiving Southern dinner where we overate and then walked out to the tobacco shed and rolled up drying tobacco in, into cigarettes at the time. Fresh tobacco. That was cool. It was great to see real tobacco growing. I remember in the middle of that episode, hey, the cattle's loose. Help us round them up. It's like, I don't know how to round up a cattle, <laughs> for God's sake. So we had to round up that cattle that got stray and lost in somebody's uh, patch. And now Tennessee, I have to say, guys, in that time was Tennessee. Uh, 
the, today when you travel around, you go to the South, you see all the chains. Every city looks the same now. But I got the sense as a Northerner that we were not in the North anymore. We saw Confederate flags. You had redneck vehicles left and right. We toured some areas. I remember when Gary would take us in the search to find this new cabin, because after the first cabin fell out, it was a horrible scramble. He took us to this place that was a, it was a former resort where they had all these fancy cabins, but now it was in complete disarray. It was from the 20s. And now there were squatters in it. And so he would tell us, now you guys just wait here. And he would go up in advance and knock on these cabins And we would come in and look at these squatters sitting in these rooms and kind of going, hi, (laughs) hi. And they're like, howdy, howdy. And then we didn't eventually shoot there, but I had actually never seen people that poor in in a long time in my life. You drive down the road and there were just shacks and huts. And it it was, I I was kind of astounded by it personally. In plywood, yeah, I do remember that. And it was the land of moon pies and mountain dew. And And moonshine. And moonshine. I remember sleeping in this cabin because we would watch it every night. One of us would sleep in it. I always dreaded my night there. We all did, and the reason the reason why was because we had some stuff stolen. <laughs> I was scared. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I remember what was funny about Tennessee is that we would shoot at this cabin and then drive a couple miles back every night to have, quote-unquote, lunch at the, this rented house where we were staying. And while we were gone... Some guys, local guys, because they knew we were filming there, they probably saw the light, snuck in and stole all of our power tools. That was a bummer. But the, but the hilarious thing is that was right next to a $20,000 Aeroflex or a $5,000 Nagra recorder. But they didn't have any use for it, so they just wanted the power tools. But I think after that, we went, all right, we got to rotate. So we would rotate at sleeping in front of the, the fire, and then, of course, the fire would go out. So whoever slept... The morning was miserable. I didn't know whether to be more scared of ghosts or crooks when I would sleep (laughs) at this place. Yeah, but Sam, I was walking down to the cabin one morning, one of the nights that you you had the shift, and I had two big bags of groceries walking down to the cabin, and this guy comes walking at me, and he has this big hillbilly beard, suspenders. He has a shotgun bandolier across his chest, and the biggest shotgun I've ever seen in my life. And I went, and he's walking from the cabin. Why, what'd you say to him? Well, I thought, I wondered if he had killed you. I figured he had killed you. That would have been... And now he was coming to me. Awful. So you ask yourself, what do you do right now? Hey, it's too late for me to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I just said, good morning. He went, morning. You, you said good morning to the guy you thought killed me? Well, I didn't want to inflame him. He, the guy might pump a few He's rounds into me. Bitch. I tried to I'll help you, I'll tell you myself, my own two It was my calm demeanor that saved us, I realize now. The weird things would happen in that cabin. Um, I don't know. Well, the cabin itself has a story. It does, as you're going to tell. No. When the 50-year version of Evil Dead comes out. <laughs> It'll take that long to get through it. But I was guarding the cabin one night, and I woke up, and there was a guy sitting next to me drinking moonshine. And then I never slept in the cabin again. I always slept on that hill. As cold as it was, I slept on the Up in the graveyard, graveyard hill. hill. <laughs> it was less scary for me. I came to the cabin, and it was dark. And I looked up on the hilltop, and there was Sam in the graveyard sleeping. And I went up to him and said, Sam, Sam. He said, I just want to die. I'm so cold. With that, he kind of went back to sleep. So I went down in the cabin, and I rustled up all the blankets I could find. And I came back out to the graveyard, and I covered Sam up. And he looked up and said, thank you. 
and I went back down and started a fire and got the coffee going. And uh, You basically saved the Spider-Man franchise at that moment. At that moment, I saved his life. I went up there to die. <laughs> he, he wanted to die. It was so cold and miserable, and it was his night to watch the cabin to make sure no burglars or ghosts came and got anything. The only thing that could warm you up on those freezing cold Tennessee nights was a slug of moonshine. Well, that moonshine, you know, it, it was insane because I remember we asked Gary Holt. We went, Gary, look, we're in the South. You have to get us moonshine. I, we, we don't want to know where it comes. We don't care. Just you, we got to have moonshine in a mason jar. And so he obliged us, got a jar, and we sampled it one night to great distress. That stuff, I have to say, had the weirdest taste. It didn't taste like vodka, gin, scotch. It tasted like a sweet... Country freedom. A horrible corn mash. You could just tell that it was, it was bad for you, but it, it warmed you up on a cold night because uh, it got plenty cold. It tasted like turpentine. The weather started good. I mean, we were November, so it was borderline. And it I remember that. So cold. I remember the. Um, Why didn't we think to get good coats at that place? I don't know what was wrong with us. None of us had really good, a good winter coat. No, we had good winter coats, and Sam, you had one to start with, but we had these giant jet-fueled heaters that we tried to keep the place warm with, and so as it got colder and colder, we backed up closer and closer to this blazing fire coming out of this, like, cement or mortar heater, and lo and behold, we'd turn around and our coats would be on fire, run outside and put them out trying to stop our coats, so eventually we lost our winter coats. Yeah, well, those stupid heaters, why were you using that heater inside? There was no way you're supposed to be using those heaters in an enclosed location. I'm surprised we didn't get carbon monoxide poisoning. We did. It says not for indoor use. Yeah, right, and it also wrecked my shirt, one of my blue shirts. It was covered with caro syrup. I put it over that stupid heater, it, 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 it created a block. It became solid, and I went to put my shirt on it, and the sleeve broke off. So I don't know what the hell we were thinking half the time. We were not thinking. That was the beauty of the moment. I've never seen heat evaporate from a structure as fast as it evaporated from that place. Because we ripped everything out of it. It was like there was no difference between the outside of 22 degrees and ourselves. <laughs> it's true. Nothing. And there are a couple shots in here in, in the movie where you can see people's breaths inside. Inside, yeah. And there's no windows in those uh, window panes. I mean, in those in window frames. I think they were just blank. They were. They cut, cut the glare out. We took all the windows out. Plus, we had this grim determination and pride never to take a day off. And we were on a mission. We were on a mission, and the cast certainly would have told us to stop because they were in somewhat in insurrection, wanting to know what their shooting schedule was each day because... They'd come down at five o'clock at night. But <laughs> well, we're all we're all in the same house. It was one house. The entire cast and crew was in this one five bedroom house. That script wasn't detailed enough to know what we were shooting the next day. I remember <laughs> doing storyboards the night before each night. We'd get home and I would just draw some storyboards, and that's what we would try and do the following day. Well, we also did try and schedule it. I remember we we from Hollywood we ordered a strip board. We did, and it's this schedule matic. Yeah, it's this big um, big. I guess unfolding uh, rectangular uh, thing that you put little strips in, and you have blue strips for a night, you have white strips for a day. You love that thing. Because we thought this is what real, we actually ordered it from a real place where that's how you scheduled movies back then. And we, I think we took the best shot at it. I remember we were moving strips around, not really knowing what we were doing, but we tried to keep some days with days and nights with nights. But the issue really came after the six weeks. Everyone in their head knew it was going to be six weeks. But it became 12 weeks. Well, it became 12 weeks. The cast didn't actually leave for good. They all went home for Christmas. Under force of death, they agreed reluctantly 
to come back on New Year's Eve, and they gave us like four or five days there before they had to go and start things like January 5th. So on New Year's Eve, the cast came back, and they got there just prior to midnight, and they tell the story of coming down the long, muddy trail to the cabin, walking down, and they found Bruce and Sam and David Goodman and Josh Becker and myself down at the cabin, absolutely out of control in the midst of a full-on firecracker war where we would light firecrackers and then throw them at each other's head and run around screaming like banshees they in were the definitely, middle. You would do a run. You would light it and then do a kamikaze run at the other guy and throw it and then like peel off so because you, you can't, it had to be out of the trajectory of your throw. But Absolutely. You had to, it all had to be on the move. These were daring raids back and forth at each other. They were and the cast who had left us and gone away to the sanity of their real life and Christmas dinner with mom and dad now came back to this madness. The they were back to now. apocalypse now. <laughs> That's right. It was in the mud, too. You know, at, at that point, I think nothing nothing made sense anymore. So we, we got into this bunch of strange habits. Yes, we'd stay up all night and become like vampires, but rather than feasting on human blood, Marlboro Lights became our source of substance. We got on this mellow yellow run down there where I remember halfway through the shoot, someone discovered water again. I remember it was you or Josh or one of us goes, oh, my God, you guys, I just had this thing called water. It's amazing because... We were living off of this mellow yellow, which is the worst stuff. It had the caffeine in it was probably off the charts. We didn't have a container for any other liquid besides the coffee. <laughs> That's right. I know that they could bring those mellow yellow uh, six-packs down, <laughs> but there was no other container. No water. Liquid. We didn't. We had hot water for washing our hands and making coffee, but there was no fresh water container, nor was there any craft service down there, so food just... Uh, guys, there was no latrine. That's right. There and we had women on, in the cast. What did they do? I there wonder. are women here. <laughs> <laughs> they went out in the woods, and they have their own stories about that experience. Yeah, I can imagine. As to waiting, being called at 6 o'clock, being put into makeup, or showing up in makeup. So they had the makeup put at the house. Then they'd arrive at the cabin, walk down that terrible drive in full makeup, get there, and then wait three, four, five hours with no waiting room. So then they just go be sitting on a log out in the woods as we're shooting Somewhere, inside. Yeah. In makeup the, sometimes, too. In makeup, yes. Well, so. the, each each of the actors, we they hit what we called the latex point, where they just could not take Tom Sullivan's makeup on their face for another second. Get it off me! <laughs> yeah, they needed that stuff off of them. Well, we had time. to, uh, part of the, the in order to ha- have them possessed, they, Sam wanted, you know, you wanted the white eyes. And the only way to do that was with these lenses called Scalero lenses. And these are glass. This is like putting a piece of Tupperware in your eye. No, I remember taking different cast members down to the optometrist to be fitted for these lenses. And it was always a very harrowing experience, as I told them. Really, it's not going to be all that bad. And uh, then they'd sit in the chair, and the optometrist would then take um, basically a clear one, stick it, uh, raise their eye up and put it in, and then the actress would start freaking out in the chair and going, "Uh, it's really burning, it's really burning, please, can you take it out? And um, how are we going to do this? uh, How are we going to do this with cast members on a distant location? And I knew that I could never be the one who had to handle their eyes because I had seen what pain and how freaked out they were. One of the actresses in particular had a real problem. Thank God uh, Ellen, who had to wear them a great deal of time down in the trap door, she was able to put them in, wear them, do all her acting, and even though she knew the 15 minutes were up, she would go, guys, just goddamn it, just keep going, all right, let's be done with it. The doctor was telling us, 
You can only keep these in for 15 minutes at a time. We promise. And you can take them in and out five times a day. All right, we will. Yeah, we're sure we will. And so then what would happen is in the middle of this with no running water, uh, someone has to carefully put these lenses into these actors' eyes with their dirty hands, shoving it with the makeup around the eyes, too. And then what we had to do was stage a sequence, like with their eyes closed, before we could shoot because they were going to be blind. Yeah, it was like we came to Tom Sullivan and said, you're not just the production designer and the illustrator and the makeup effects artist. You're also the doctor on the show. You're the contact lens guy. Right. Congratulations, Tom. So He did a very good job taking care of the girls. Yeah, but I remember, you know, we had to block a scene out with their eyes closed so that they could do it when their eyes then had the contacts and then sometimes try and shoot more than one shot with them in. So it was a usually a pretty productive 15 minutes when they were in and ready to go, and then they pop them out. But it didn't matter. After a while, they were, like, trying to rip their makeup off and, and understood Teresa's meltdown was when she was in the floorboards. You almost because... had to put one of those dog collars on them with like cones. <laughs> keep their hands away from the tearing off the latex. Put a cone around their head. That would work. But it was, uh, I think everyone, it sort of happened to everyone. And I think everyone got injured at some point, too. I remember my brother Don fell off a cliff uh, well, during when we were scouting or shooting somewhere. He just lost his footing because he just took off somewhere, uh, refused to seek any kind of medical attention, just soaked in a tub that whole night. And I'm, he locked himself in the bathroom. I'm pounding on the door going, Don, you could, you could have a concussion. Your, kid, your spine could be broken. What do you? He goes, I'm all right. And he just ignored it, and, and so Don fell off the cliff and just sort of limped around after that. My favorite wound, Bruce, was your black hole in your leg. There was a black. Uh. There was a piece of latex that you never really see because where Linda at the graveyard had shredded Bruce's pants. She, leg she comes his... out of the grave. Linda comes out of the grave and shreds my leg, and under the we had to score the pants and make it look like she was shredding it. And then underneath it was an appliance, a shredded leg appliance that Tom Sullivan put on. And when we took it off, sometimes when you take appliances off, it, it'll pull hairs. And I obviously got something ingrown with some horrible chemicals and latex. I got a black hole in my leg that was, that was seeping the most <laughs> heinous stuff out of it for, for months. I still have an indent in my leg from where that came from. Uh, our friend Josh Becker jumped down off the rafters one day right onto a board, and a, a nail went right through his foot, basically. So he curled up into a ball, and for, for, the, for the next week, it was this. We'd knock on his door. Hey, Josh, uh, are you going to go to the set today? I don't think so. So we sort of lost Josh for about a week. There's no medical attention. He, no, Even none. something like that won't bring a doctor to the set for no, us. No, uh-uh. No, Sam, you, when we were filming a bridge sequence, Josh told the story of you got hit by a log that basically knocked you senseless. Where the camera was still rolling. I mean, you you had like dried spit in the corners of your mouth, and you were completely pale. You had gotten the crap knocked out of you by this some log. Oh. And what do you do? You know, you keep keep shooting. Did you get injured, Rob? I was standing on a rafter overhead where we adjust the lights, and I slipped, lost my balance, and fell. And there was a nail sticking out from the beam, 
and my blue jeans caught that nail. It impaled itself in my leg, and I was hanging upside down by my jeans and my skin. And thank God Sam and Bruce came and kind of lifted me off of this nail and down to the ground, so I had this big bleeding hole in my leg that I still have a scar to this day. But I don't think the scars that I bore was anything like that that the actors carry to this day. It was hard on every single one of them. By the end of the shooting, none of them really talked to us for for a couple of months. They were kind of done with us for me. a while. <laughs> they were so mad at me. Well, Ellen Sandwise, she had, because of her chase sequence, uh, she was bleeding, very specifically bleeding, bleeding after the, being chased through the woods. Because think of it, she had little moccasins on, uh, panties, and like a nightshirt. That's it. And it was, you know, 30-something degrees at night. I remember Rob pointing out a blood drop on the, we used plywood instead of dolly track to get our wheelchair to go straight where we were filming from. And Rob's like, now that's a good actress. Yeah, she's great. And she never stopped giving for the pictures. She never stopped. Then eventually we just got kicked out of there, didn't we, Rob? We did get kicked out. We were living in a house, and one day they showed up and said, um, well, they kind of gave us a notice. In one week, you're going to be out. We never took them seriously because we were paying the rent. Suddenly, this moving van pulled up, and lo and behold, they were going to turn it into a house of ill repute, and a bunch of um, prostitutes were moving in. <laughs> Literally, brass beds were coming in there. Big brass beds and mirrors. And so we moved into the cabin. So there was our bedroom right there for the past week or 10 days we were shooting. Well, the last two days, we, we were up. We just we didn't go to sleep. It was that, that was the last part of it, of shooting like Ash walking away from the cabin and trying to get the last shot of the movie done. And it was really bare bones at that point. Oh, it was so miserable trying to... We were supposed to replace the cabin to its pristine condition, so we had to put a ceiling back in it. We bought a bunch of particle board. I thought I had figured out exactly how it went together. (laughs) And then I finally collapsed and fell asleep, and Sam kept trying to wake me. Because you sent me to Kmart. We had no sleep, and I was at Kmart saying, I need... uh, 16, 6 by 4, <laughs> 2 by uh, plywood boards. And I barely got the strength to buy them and haul them onto the car and strap them up and drive them back. And by the time I got back there, we and the boys couldn't figure out how they would fit on the rafters above, what configuration they would work in. And so we tried to wake you, and you couldn't be woken. I Rob, couldn't be woken. Rob, damn it, wake up! <laughs> We've wake got up! to know. We've got another code. How do these boards fit, man? <laughs> I had curled up on that couch there, and nothing was going to pull me back to consciousness. So, For some reason, the people that gave us this barn at the time, why, do, why did we have to return it in a state where it had a, a, a subroof on it? I didn't even understand No, we, we should have brought the cow manure back into the cabin to properly repair it to the condition it was before. Why did they ask for that, Rob? I have no idea. They, did, they didn't want us to wreck the cabin, but, you know, that thing was a complete piece of crap. We left it. We did leave it better than we found it because we scraped all the cow crap out of it. Well, see the plaster on that wall behind the lamp? That um, that just shows there was no real wall surface. Yet. It had all rotted away, and I remember Dart had to fake plaster over half of it. Yeah. That's why the textures keep changing on those walls. Very bizarre. I remember finally getting out of there. Of We had to load it with a giant rental truck and we just put in all kinds of stuff and Josh Becker and I drove out of there I was driving and uh, it was at night and we t- we took this corner and we heard this horrendous sound of just and and the, the whole top cabin just shook we thought oh that's that's weird we stopped got out looked around it seemed okay got back in and then finally on our road we were going back up the i-75 freeway back to detroit our first rest stop had all these bright 
truck lights. And we got out of the truck and went, oh, my God, the whole the whole corner from from the top corner to the back of the truck had been opened up like a monster had just pulled the thing back. Fortunately, they had we had we had canopy coverage at that point. But I remember truck rentals don't they don't let you have canopy coverage anymore because too many idiots like me were destroying them. Well, you make it sound like it was deep in your journey. Didn't you, like, pull out of the driveway and instantly it happened? Uh, it did, but we didn't check. We got out to check, and it was too dark. It looked fine. But then when we finally later, it was all lit, and we realized the, the mayhem, and it was just snowing into the truck. Right. We left. We were dead exhausted, had no money. Bar- not, I don't even know if enough to stop and eat, enough for gas. So to culminate this horrible physical experience, we drove back falling asleep at the wheel, <laughs> beeping at each other as we started to veer off the road on I-75. Rob, wake <laughs> up! Can you hear my horn? You're drifting into oncoming traffic! Rob! Beep, beep. Rob! <laughs> so we drove straight back from Tennessee back up to Detroit. With an unfinished movie. With a very much an unfinished movie. It was so insane how irresponsible we were because I remember you said, I'm going to pull off the road for a few minutes and catch some... 40 winks. I remember saying, I'm going to keep going. I've got to keep going. Why? Why did I have to keep going? <laughs> I, I couldn't think straight. Well, let me tell you, that movie gave me a Vietnam-like resonance in my life. I went home, back home to Michigan. I slept on the floor of my room. There was a beautiful, comfortable bed. I slept on the floor of my bed for probably two months. And my mother was like, uh, quick question, Bruce. Why are you sleeping on the floor? And I, and I started growing a beard. Just did some strange thing. I, I went feral when I went home. And I went, well, that's how we would have done it in, in Tennessee. She's like, well, you're not there anymore. What, what's your problem? Snap out of it. I know that experience messed me up, too. I couldn't I even speak about the horrors of the experience for, <laughs> for weeks. I couldn't really tell anyone what had... I've never been able to really tell anyone the, the depth of the hardness of that experience, the, ex- the levels of exhaustion. Post-traumatic stress. It was. I swear to God. I think we we each had a low-grade version of that. The whole aspect of being in Tennessee and that experience of living and working on nights and losing your mind in cold and in pain with no running water really set set the tone and gave us the inspiration for what would be the final sequence in the movie. But the whole meltdown sequence was not filmed. I know we did a little bit on location with sort of parts of Creature's collapsing on themselves with like dummies and things but we needed the entire meltdown which became a whole magilla in and of itself so where how did bart pierce get involved in that bart pierce uh tim philo and tom sullivan did a brilliant job in that meltdown bart pierce i think was working at allied film labs rob yes he was he was at a lab and i think he saw our dailies maybe and he said who are these idiots uh, they think they're making a feature film and i think he inquired and found out who we were and what we were up to, and got in touch with Tom Sullivan, I think, or maybe Tim Philo. I think it was through Philo because our, our, our dailies went through Duart, by and large. But Bart did work at a lab in downtown Detroit. Oh, then how did he? Uh, then I'm, I'm mistaken. Maybe he knew Tim. We're going to have to cut that out. <laughs> but how did, how, did, uh, <laughs> how did he become involved then? I don't know. It's 30 years later, folks. We, we don't Rob, really wake up! Idea. Wake up! It's 30 years ago! You're still driving in that car! <laughs> <laughs> what I do remember is we had this big meltdown sequence we needed, and, and we didn't know how to do it. So we went to guys who we used to work for in Detroit called Magic Lantern, which Bob Dyke ran that company, and 
We used to work as production assistants um, on, on big commercials. That and that Bill Deere's shoots. The that Bill Deere would shoot and Alan uh, Davio. And so we went to them, outlined the whole shoot, and they came back to us and said, yes, for $500,000, we can do that. We went, $500,000, our whole movie did it cost like a third of that. So now we had to find a way to do this meltdown on our own. And however Bart Pierce got involved, he allowed this meltdown, the finale, to be set up in his basement. His wife allowed it. His wife allowed it, although it would probably ruin their marriage. I think it did. And because it stunk and there were cockroaches and everything. It was three months in that basement of, yeah, bringing in uh, heinous things to film, it. anywhere from Madagascar cockroaches that would hiss at you. Uh, there were little snakes, little garden snakes, just uh, creamed corn. I mean, just all kinds of things going in and out of that basement. And somehow uh, we had to then figure out the animation process. I think in Super 8 movies we had dabbled in little, you, you move a little bit, take a frame, you move a little bit, take a frame. But this was, this was way more serious than that. There were split screens, there were moving mats and things like that. This is where Tom Sullivan's uh, great experience in animation and Bart Pierce's uh, technology in mat work and both of their knowledge of the old-fashioned rack over Mitchell camera really saved us. Um, we were, all we had to do in the original shoot was shoot the wide shots, the stuff that led up to the meltdown, one or two shots in the middle, as much as we could do, some close-ups of Cheryl's neck starting to collapse in upon himself, herself, but the ending. And what was cool was what uh, Bart and Tim and Tom achieved together was shots where technology was intermingled, like there'd be stop-motion, uh, claymation happening, and in a matted-off portion of the frame, there would be a liquid event that could never be done in stop-motion, so they tried to achieve like a... Which is, Sam, I think you were in favor of that because it's the smoke and mirrors. Don't look here, no look here. That you're, you get a little bit of this with something else because your eye looks at the liquid, you go, oh, this is normal. Oh, his face is melting on the other side. I, that was their idea, though. I was a big fan of it when they told it to me. But yeah, I, I was a big fan of it, but I think that was uh, Tom and, and Bart's brainchild. But as that was going on, we began assembling the picture. We went around... D Detroit looking, first logging the footage ourselves, then trying to get an editor. And we, we found an editor actually through the Detroit. Detroit commercials brought in a lot of people sometimes, big big people to direct some of these bigger commercials and, and big editors and stuff. And I think a local editor who we approached to edit the movie said something like he couldn't do it, but he I think he re recommended Edna Paul, who, was, who had, I think, come to Detroit to do some editing. Yes, we use that company and that editor to sync all our dailies for us. That's right. So that when we, on his recommendation, did go to Edna Ruth Paul, who we knew because she had come to Detroit to edit some commercials locally, when we finally went to her in New York, we at least could come with the majority of our dailies sunk up. And I believe she had she had indicated that she had edited a feature, or or maybe more than one. She was finishing a movie called Fear No Evil that Frank Loja had just... Mm -hmm done and her assistant at that time was uh, Joel Cohn. So Joel I think was certainly heavily involved in cutting some of the more actiony bits in Evil Dead itself. He also directed The Lady in White, a picture which I really loved. At the end of Evil Dead, we all went out to dinner. We had some money from the investors to finish the picture. And so one night I said, "Joel, let's go out to dinner." And Joel said, "Can I bring my brother?" And we went Sure. So we met Ethan. Then somehow this other guy showed up at dinner. They said, uh, this is our friend Barry. 
he's a he's a struggling DP. Can he come to dinner? So um, we all went out to this fancy dinner at Grand Central Station at the Oyster Bar. Barry and, Sonnenfeld. And it turned out it was Barry Sonnenfeld, who was a um, at that time just a DP. He had shot some stuff for HBO, the Ten Sexual Wonders of the World, like a golden bathtub in Japan and that. Now, in hindsight, it was a Hollywood power dinner in the making with Joel and Ethan, Barry, Sam, and myself. And this is all New York City, because we I remember Edna was from New York, so we, whoever was going to go there for the editing process, had to go to New York, which was another big deal of, of the whole thing of where are you going to stay? How do we pay for all that? So we kind of had to keep raising money because we, we'd only raised 85000 We We could raise up to one hundred and fifty. so I think we... We kept raising money in Detroit while you, Sam, were in New York editing. Yes. Uh, we were sort of tag-teaming that way. Rob and I, I think, were... I'm, I stayed mostly in Detroit until the sound portion of it. We had no money when we were there. All the money went to the uh, salary of Edna Ruth Paul, and she gave us a very good deal, I'm sure, but we just had no money to live on. I remember how cheaply we had to live and how we had to scrounge and how Red Apple's supermarket had sometimes... Two for one bread sale, two loaves of bread for a dollar, and you get a, a soup mix for thirty nine cents, and really that's what we live off of, like a dollar thirty nine a day, two red apple loaves and one of those split pea soup mixes, and chock full of nuts coffee, and breakfast specials because you go to the places that had the ninety nine cent breakfast special, power up on that, taking the subway, we were sort of living there on and off, and then obviously once it was edited, we had to get into the wacky world of sound with this guy Joe Macefield. Who did Edna recommend, Joe, Sam, yes. do you think? Joe had done some sound for Edna. She recommended him as a sound designer. And you and me really learned how 35-millimeter feature films, or 16-millimeter in this case, were, were done in post-production as far as sound goes. And Joe taught us a tremendous amount about sound design, sound creation, about attention to detail, about every little effect. Every, every single sound effect, is, yeah. He, he had them numbered. When he, when he would spot it. And he got he would get pissed at us all the time. He'd go, fellas, please, let me direct the sound. Fellas, please. I know, because we thought we were the big sound directors. We had a very specific approach to sound when we came into their room, very bullheaded about how we wanted to do it, because sound was our thing at the time. But Yeah, we thought we knew what we were doing. We didn't. We only knew <laughs> that we were the kings of Super 8, in my opinion, but we were amateurs when it came to professional feature sound, and we had to go back to school from square one on that day we met Joe. Yeah, I think to this day they're still talking about the Foley session at Sound One, which was run at the time by Alicia Birnbaum. Because I remember I had to drive a truck of props because we realized we had to almost reenact parts of the movie on in sound. And so I remember we brought the trap door, we brought the clock, I think. We brought a bunch of stuff and it wound up fitting in a in a like a fourteen foot truck that I drove from uh, Michigan and you know, just sort of maneuvering around Manhattan in a truck for the first time. I had no idea where I was going, and everyone's honking at me. And So we finally unloaded all this stuff into their stage in order to get all the blood effects, the stabbing into this. We tried chickens. We tried cabbage, carrots. Because we had not the money to hire a professional Foley artist. We had to do the Foley ourselves. Right, right. And, yeah, today you would have two specially trained Foley artists you pay them a lot of money to do all this stuff, and they, they come with bags of props and everything, and we were just sort of figuring it out as we went with Joe's tutelage. And Every sound was made by us on that Foley stage, except Alicia did the footsteps. That's right. That was his specialty. And he, it, was, he was, uh, it was a newer facility for him, a little more of a mom-and-pop operation at that time. He would tell us that he would have to run to the back, 
turn the projector on, then run back into the stage, and he'd have to give enough lead time to get back down to the stage to record the footsteps, run back up and turn it off. So he, he did this on his, uh, I guess, in his spare time or something, but he was really good at it. He was the footmeister. Really, every single sound from Bruce coming back in just prior to this and coming back in the cabin was probably shot silently, and we had to recreate all the sound. Yeah, the further the movie went, the less sound we shot. I mean, I think probably the last couple of weeks of shooting was mostly with that RES or with the BL, but we just didn't need sound anymore. And yeah, I think probably a third of this movie had to get completely replaced. I believe when Tim left, he took the BL with him, didn't he? Uh, no, he left. We promised not to use it. We would only use it as an emergency. And the second he walked out the door, Sam went, get the BL out. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then we mixed it with Mel Zelniker, uh, where you finally take all these tracks of sound. And this was in the day when only New York, may, might have been the New York system, it was only one guy who, was, who would mix, what, at that time, maybe 24 tracks, maybe. Without computer memory of mm. holding certain tracks, he had to do it all at once. Yeah, and he had to manually uh, toggle back and forth before he could punch in or you would hear a sound jump. This guy was really good but really crabby. I would be, too, if that was the technology to yeah. mix in. Yeah. Very difficult. How can, you, how can you find where you were before without computers and match that sound when you've got 24 tracks going? Well, you had all the little numbers on the 35 track, and you had the guy in the back room because it was endlessly breaking, the fill uh, in between the, the sound effects on the 24 different tracks. So you had 24 Version right, and in those days, you you needed to have a van pull up and and guys offload this stuff with with hand dollies because for each the movie is let's say ten thousand feet long. If you had five or six tracks, now you've got fifty thousand feet in order to go with that. And each track, you had to have a track for each reel, so you got ten reels in the movie. So, uh, I mean, these things would come out of the van, and there would be there would be case after case of these of these film elements. It really was, as whereas now it fits in a little thing in your pocket. You could have a memory stick and hold all this information. Bruce, I were you the music after, editor? I was the music editor. And I was the worst guy for the job, really, other than the fact that I, I, I volunteered to do it or Sam made me do it. Uh, I didn't know the first thing of beats, measures. Uh, I gave a fake name of Sheb Woolley that we, were, we used to fool around with, and music editor Sheb Woolley. But there, at the time, I ignorantly didn't know that anything about the real Sheb Woolley, who's a performer. I'm like, how stupid is that? But I was just trying to hide under some fake name. And so there's, you know, some decent edits and some kind of very questionable edits. But, you know, that that was the nature of the beast. I guess he didn't want them to know this was a low-budget picture. Uh, yeah, that's right, because everything else was so obvious that it was a high-budget, high-quality production. Because Bruce got very serious. He'd sit at that movieola and listen this, to the music and run it back and forth and flip the track at just the right place. And uh, But he took the job incredibly seriously as the music editor, and I didn't actually... Yes, because I was terrified and I, I was clueless. That That's why. As insane as Bruce is in his performances in this picture, he's always been, and you can even see here, a very precise person. He's excellent at hitting marks, the best actor I ever worked with at that, great at achieving repetition of performance when necessary, or he can be absolutely insane. Or sometimes both. He can be an insane and absolutely recreatable way so you can cut into it for the next take. So I'm not surprised that he loved that process of precise editing and precision, working with that splicer and marking a quarter frame here and shaving a little bit off the mag track with a razor blade there to get just the uh, 
just the edge off that. Well, sound those effect. machines were. I have to say, those machines were a little scary to me. They were the upright moviolas that were uh, before the flatbed editing system and before digital editing. That you you feared these a little bit. These those machines, as you know, you had to interlock the 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 picture head with the sound head, and it got hot, and you could the thing would be turning. You try to put it on, it would grab, and it would tear the film constantly. You were repairing a shredded. Because the tension would be, would be too much on these were the old workhorses. These things went back to the, you know, the heyday of motion pictures. They used these green machines, and I don't know how they did it. I found them to be fairly temperamental machines. They we have be a really ripping. good one still. Yeah, we still have it. I mean, they they made lots of movies on them, lots of good good movies. So it, it it's a very primitive editing tool, but it was it was interesting to get to know all that stuff. I like the old technology. You never lost sync. And if you did, you knew why, because the frame had slipped and you could re-sync it. Nowadays, with all the new technology coming in, so many times I'm in a professional studio and there's an electronic breakdown and nobody knows what's gone wrong or why you've lost sync. Right. They really had a great old system. Yeah, the old days. The old days. And now, obviously, the thing finally got finished, you know, raising money, shooting a little more, editing a little more, finishing the sound. Then there was the whole sales process. I remember, I think with Irvin Shapiro, the guy that we finally hooked up with to do the foreign sales, I think the process was we would get the, those giant variety issues would come out. The regular variety, it's a trade magazine, would come out every week, every day. But then when they had special sales events... No, it was the big January issue where they had all of the distributors... For the American film and market. And all the grosses. Well, this was before the American film market. Mm. Um, they had all the grosses for the year and top 10 or top 100 of all time grosses and often distributors would take out ads to, as to what they were selling because really at that time there was only con and MeFed and the american film market started i think we went to the first one here in los angeles to sell it but one of the advertisers was Irvin shapiro right that he represented x y and z movie and i remember i think that caught our attention because he had handled some of george romero's earlier works and we thought George Romero, Night of the Living Dead, Evil Dead, Book of the Dead. Uh, so I think that's what led us to Irvin Shapiro. It did, but it was not before we had kissed a lot of frogs before we found a prince, because I think the movie was done, and we showed it to some guys in Detroit who were, I think, in the pornography business. And they said, yeah, we'll give you $50,000, and you'll be happy with it, and come back and kiss us for it. And if you don't take it now, we'll give you 30000 in two more weeks. And Bruce wanted to stand up and fight the guys right then and there. Well, come on. <laughs> We worked too hard at that point. It was too frustrating. You, you kissed those guys. I was thinking about it, but yeah, we went around. It was a, quite a long negotiation, probably a year with New Line, who distributed. And finally, it was only when we realized that we were in no position to tackle those guys that we got a film representative, Irvin Shapiro of Films Around the World, who really was the grandfather of the foreign film business. He had bought films overseas in the individual countries of Poland and Czechoslovakia and Italy and would bring them back to America and play them in the ethnic communities in America. And then finally in the 20s, he said, oh, this is crazy. I'm going to make everyone come and meet us and a couple other guys who did the same thing in the south of France in Cannes. And that was the beginning of the Cannes Film Festival. And so Irvin had gone to that. So he was really the godfather of the Cannes Film Festival. And foreign sales. And foreign sales. He had worked in publicity for the battleship Potemkin with Sergei Eisenstein. I mean, this guy went back to the silent era. And when we met him, what would you say, guys? He was 80-something maybe mm -hmm. when we met him? 
He looked like it, but he was probably his mid-70s. All right. But, I mean, he had been well, he had been around. He was a good friend of Picasso and Matisse. He, he had a fascinating life. He was very good to us. He, he was not against having a couple of shots of vodka in the morning before lunch, which was not a bad thing in those days. <laughs> he was the one person in the distribution system that we learned to trust and who was treated us honestly, and we had a wonderful relationship with him. Without, I don't think we'd, we would have survived in the business. Now, Irvin Shapiro was probably one of the crucial linchpins of this whole process because he helped figure out how to do the elements. I remember him saying... Where are your delivery elements? We were like, what's a delivery element? He was the first one to explain that you had to have uh, 20 color stills, 20 black and white stills. And we had, we, did, we had no stills from the movie. We had to finally go from our 16-millimeter frames of the movie and pick cool frames of the movie and get those blown up. That's the only reason why we have photos. But he would say, where's your special soundtrack without the dialogue so that he could sell that to overseas territories, and they could put their own dialogue in. We, we were like, huh? There were many laboratory elements that we had to have that, you know, that stuff adds up to fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars $75,000 before you bat an eye, and he actually fronted the money to come up with most of that, which, so he was not only a mensch, he, he really was a, a mentor, a sponsor. In fact, uh, for our stills in what, what was then our domestic poster, which we went back and shot, he fronted the money for it, but I remember having to haggle with his secretary, Ann Axelberth, for how much they were going to give us for the photo shoot. We had gone in with, like, a budget of $3,000, and she said, oh, that's too much, boys. You don't need that. You don't need this, and kind of haggled us down to, like, $2,000 to go and do this photo shoot. So it was still a little bit of a mom-and-pop operation, but they they really did teach us the ropes and position us long-term so that this was a franchise because after this we decided, oh, we're going to go off and make something and not come back to horror. And he had the foresight at that time to run a couple ads for Evil Dead 2, I think Medieval Dead at that time. I think the important thing about Irvin also was that nobody wanted the movie domestically. Uh, we couldn't get a distributor. It was, it was Irvin making these sales to particularly England that got that ball rolling because what happened in England was then Palace Pictures, they were the ones who bought it, it went crazy over there. They treated it like it was a major motion picture, not like it was a low-budget movie. We were really lucky that Irvin had the foresight at the Cannes Film Festival to show it to Steve Woolley, who was working with Nick Powell of Palace Pictures. And Steve Woolley liked the film, and he negotiated with Irvin in one of those rooms at the, um, what's the name of the fancy hotel? Carlton. At the Carlton Hotel. And I remember he ended up selling it to Palace Pictures for $60,000, which was a fortune for us and our investors back then. Obviously, it didn't come to us or the investors. It went back to paying some of the costs that Irvin had fronted. But it paid off a lot of those costs, I remember, a lot of the advertising costs and the money he had fronted us. And then the film, like you say, opened in London under the very careful promotion of Palace Pictures. They did a wonderful job really pushing that picture out there. It was the first film I remember ever being released day and date. Is that right, Rob? They released yeah. the video and the film together at the same time? To stop piracy. Is that why they did it? Mm -hmm. Or were they afraid of the censorship board? No, they were afraid at that time of piracy. Wow. Well, it really worked. It became a big hit. And it, it was, was actually second to only to E.T. and a couple of the screenings over there. It was, it was fairly absurd. And then in 83, it was the number one DVD in the U.K., I'm not DVD, video. Oh, sorry, excuse me, but that was pre-DVD. It was uh, VHS. Uh, but what was really exciting for me was to see Evil Dead at the top, and you look down the list, and The Shining was like number seven. Oh, that was not a happy moment for me. And I, I was excited. Are you kidding? To beat Stan? 
oh, to beat Stanley Kubrick. Mm. What a good deal. The launch of Palace Pictures allowed us to make a distribution deal here in the United States. I think distributors here saw that it was making money there, and they gave us an opportunity to, to make a deal with them. Which eventually was New Line Cinema before all of their Lord of the Rings days. It was, and it was a deal that would just be unheard of today, which was New Line took the theatrical and the 16-millimeter rights, and then we had the television and the video rights. And foreign. And foreign, free and clear. So actually the video rights then went to a company, Thorn EMI, which had nothing to do with it. So it was really separate entity, and it worked out great because we found between the two entities, at least we got money back to pay our investors from. Well, inadvertently, we realized only, I think, in hindsight, that by splitting up the rights, that's what saved us. That's right. There were companies at one point, Irvin Shapiro had an interest from Warner Brothers for the whole world, for, for every everything, lock, stock, and barrel. And we were a little afraid. We were a little hesitant to sell it all to one person. And, and New Line Cinema worked out to not be our best friend in this whole process because we we felt that we couldn't get a penny out of those guys. And yet, Ironically, we got money from Thorn EMI, from all the all these foreign distributors were, wound up being honest when we thought we would never get any money from them and we thought we'd make our money in the United States, but it wound up being just about the opposite. Just the opposite. Made all our money internationally. So thank God for that. We've been asked before about when we knew the movie was successful or how did we feel about it or you know what when could we say that the movie was worth all of the effort? And for me, it was the time I got to see Evil Dead projected in the showcase cinemas in Pontiac. It was a Saturday, and I, I went with a friend, and it was only probably about 20, 20 people in the audience. It was a matinee. But what occurred to me is that finally I was sitting in the same theater that I watched The Poseidon Adventure and The Hindenburg and every other dumb movie. That that's, when, that's when the success hit for me. It wasn't about the money or anything. We made a movie that is showing in the same theater I went to as a kid. So... It finally came full circle for me after that. So 20 years later of selling X amount of DVDs, it, none of that mattered to me because we did it. We, we finally got to dance with the big dogs. I want to talk about the classic for a second. What? Yes, Sam's Car, 73, Delta 88, Delta Royale, whatever it was you called. You built the ants off. <laughs> yeah. Sam, I want to say something. I know that there's been a lot of press of how I've, I've tried to kill your car. You ruined the car. Well, it did, never did anything to you, and you've 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 treated it maliciously. Do you realize why really? though? Do you realize why? Why I want to kill that car, and why I still will if I ever find it. Oh, maybe you better cry <laughs> home to your mama. Yeah, listen up, buddy. Mom, mom, that car, car being so precious to you. Any anyone who is willing to take a car, a car's gonna crush you in the next picture. Yeah. Well, my favorite thing of telling people, uh, they want to know what Sam Raimi's like. I tell them this. Sam Raimi had something about this car that was so much in his head that he insisted on putting it in every movie he's ever made. Not the Quick and the Dead. Including Quick and the Dead, because he had it broken down to its little chassis and built a wagon on top of it so that he could say that. That's why I want to kill his car. Because the car can't be in every movie that he made. It's too absurd. And for, for you to want to perpetuate that... The car needs to be put down. I just figured out what you can do in Spider-Man 4. Really? What? Yeah, I just figured out your part. What? Wreck your car on camera? He's a mechanic. That would be it. my favorite. You're going to play a piece of asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the car is going to hit it and then flip over and blow up? 
I would I would play that piece of asphalt. <laughs> you got the ass part down. Hey, it's not my fault. <laughs> well, gentlemen, it was great seeing you again. Great spending an afternoon with Sam, you. Sam, Rob, pleasure to be uh, revisiting uh, 30 years later. We're still here. We're still all active in the film business. I guess that's good. Kids, I know you think you bought this picture once on video, and then your dads are scratching your heads when you demanded it again on DVD the first or second time. Now you're trying to figure out why you buy it a third time. Blu-ray, yeah. Blu-ray. Oh, Blu-ray, that's right. <laughs> Bob, tell me a little bit about the Blu-ray transfer that we're having Bob Morosky do right now from our original negative. Well, ideally, it's, you're going to be seeing it and watching it in 133, which it really hasn't been projected in since its original projection. The original aspect ratio. At the Redford Theater, which was basically what drive-in format was. and well, uh, Television meter, mostly was, too. Yeah, television and 16 millimeter. Old television before it went to widescreen. Right. 166 is usually what the kids know as TV. This is even squarer than that in more ways than one. It's almost as square as we are. Well, Rob, if you're alive, I hope to see you next year. For the hologram edition. For the hologram edition. <laughs> see you, folks. Thank you. So long, kids. <laughs>